0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the New Books in Japanese Studies channel on the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. It's been a while, but uh, joining us today is Dr. Jay Takeuchi from Indiana University. Jay is a scholar of Japanese social linguistics. Her new book, Language Ideologies and Second Language Speaker Legitimacy. Native Speaker Bias in Japan, was published earlier this year by Multilingual Matters. In this book, Jay examines the dilemmas faced by second-language speakers of Japanese as a result of social bias. Welcome, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So can you tell us about uh, yourself a bit first? Uh, What do you research and teach about?
0: Yeah. So as you mentioned, I do research in Japanese sociolinguistics and also applied linguistics, sort of broadly defined. Um, During my graduate studies, I had a lot of training in second language acquisition, Um, and so I look at second language acquisition, foreign language pedagogy. But I often make the point that I don't do the a acquisition so much as the second language part. That I'm really interested in second language use, and I use qualitative methods. And I look at second language speakers of Japanese, particularly those who live and work in Japan and who are residents rather than students in um, educational contexts. So that's what my research is focused on. And I'm really interested in Japanese speech styles like keigo or the politeness language, um, regional dialects, gender language. And um, those are the things I look at when I, and doing my research. I also am a teacher, so I teach Japanese language, and usually I teach intermediate and above language classes, and I teach Japanese business language, and also um, courses in English about sociolinguistics. Yeah.
1: And what drew your attention to second language speakers of Japanese? And you mentioned uh, especially with residents in Japan rather than students. Is there a reason for that?
0: Yeah, so first of all, I'm a second language speaker of Japanese myself, and I lived, I I did a, a, a BA in the U.S., and then I went to teach English in Japan, and I ended up staying in Japan for 12 years, um, so I lived and worked in Japan myself, of course, for a long time, and, um, but my undergraduate degree was in Japanese, not English, so my interest was always in Japanese language, Um There's a lot of research, a lot of really good and important research, that looks at language learners in classroom contexts. There's less research that looks at people who are out in the world living their daily lives in a second language, and so that was part of the motivation for focusing on residents as opposed to students.
1: That yeah. is a yes, that's a very interesting choice. And I recall, um, I just returned from my research in Japan as a second uh, language speaker of Japanese myself. And I recall meeting a lot of people who complained about, or oh, I can't say complaint, um, they were not, they were upset about being a resident in Japan, but not able to speak so-called perfect Japanese. So this brings um out our next question. What is speaker legitimacy and how should we understand its importance?
0: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And it's really relevant for people who live and work in a different country, in a country that's that doesn't speak the language that that person grew up with. Um, speaker legitimacy is this idea um, that gets at the right to speak and the right to be heard. And the second part is really important because what I mean by that is having people pay attention to what you're saying, to the content of your speech, rather than, um, for example, the form. And it might be easier to understand that by talking about it in the reverse. Well, what does it mean if you don't have the right to be heard? That means what you say doesn't get attention. So maybe you say something and somebody says, oh, your accent's really funny or you say something and they say, you know, that's not the right way to say it. Or the flip side, they might say, oh wow, your your Japanese is so good. Uh, I can't believe you speak Japanese. All of those things take the focus off of what you said and put the focus onto how you're saying it. So speaker legitimacy is the idea that if you have speaker legitimacy, if you're a legitimate speaker, there's none of this attention to form that people are focusing on what you're saying, what the discussion is about and so on. Um, So I think it's, I should mention that speaker legitimacy comes from the work of Bourdieu and he does a lot of work on capital and social capital. Um, One of his, uh, or symbolic capital as opposed to monetary financial capital. So one of the types of capital that he talks about is linguistic capital and linguistic capital is using the right language in the right context with the right people in ways that are beneficial for you. The idea of a job interview is a really good example of that. If you can speak appropriately in a job interview, you're much more likely to get the job. If you can't speak appropriately, maybe you don't have professional speech or you um, you don't know the jargon for the type of, of job you're applying for. All of those things make it less likely that you're gonna get that job. So linguistic capital is tied into actual capital financial resources. Legitimate language and legitimate speakerhood are a type of linguistic capital. Um, So that's the origin for this concept. And in Bourdieu's work, he's really talking about the ways that social class, socioeconomic status and privilege limit who gets to be considered a legitimate speaker, Um, and so there's a lot of research about the ways that speaker legitimacy is unevenly, unequally distributed. What I want to say is everybody should have speaker legitimacy, and we should have speaker legitimacy as a sort of mutual regard, and so I think I've sort of taken it a step further than um, these other research, there's other forms of talking about it, but that, hopefully that um, is clear.
1: Yeah, that is, and I'm sure we'll explore more to the answer as we go through the book. Um, so more specifically with uh, speaker legitimacy or um, the challenge that's posed on uh, second language speakers of Japanese, what are some of the common difficulties um, for, se- for Japanese learners beyond just grammar and vocabulary?
0: Right. So any any foreign language or second language presents a challenge to the learner, especially in the beginning stages, as you say, with its grammar and vocabulary and getting the mechanics kind of in place. Japanese can be tricky, especially for speakers who come from English, but not just English, but um, because of the registers, so the politeness levels, um, Which are generally in English, we just say "keigo," which is Japanese politeness language. But being able to use the appropriate level of politeness is hard, and it's really hard in Japanese because we don't imitate or parrot the same register as as the person who's speaking to us. So the person who speaks to us uses honorific language. When we respond, we often switch to humble language, and what that means is you don't get to use the same words that you just heard. And that's really hard for learners because one of the ways that people who go to another country and learn the language of that country, sort of on the ground, one of the ways people do that is by listening and repeating and being in context. I think that it's very hard to learn Japanese politeness without some kind of manual, a book, a dictionary, because you know when you wanna say to go, there's the neutral polite form, ikimas, the casual form, iku, the humble, maimas and the honorific, irashishaiimasu, and then also the um, ukemikeigo ikaremas, which is using a passive form to express honorific politeness. Well, you cannot pick that up just by being out in the world. And I think in a lot of languages, you can pick up a lot of those nuances just by being out in the world. So for Japanese, politeness is a particular challenge because you do need a sort of guided um, introduction into the different levels the, uh, and all the concepts I just threw out, if anybody is listening who doesn't have any background in Japanese, whoa, what is you know honorific, humble, hang on. So that's um, a big challenge for learners. And it's hard to recreate in the classroom. So, you know, it's a, it's almost a paradox because I'm, I just said you can't learn it in context because you need some kind of dictionary, but you do need to be in context to understand how it works. So politeness is definitely at the top of the list of challenges for Japanese language learners. But we also have um, the range of of casual speech like how casual are you going to be how how do you how do you speak with someone that you're trying to become friends with and if you're using very honorific and humble language it's kind of going to create a barrier there are also local dialects and then gendered language which i think we'll talk about more a little bit later but um, each of these registers present a challenge for learners and because of the tendency in, in Japan to think that Japanese is so hard that no foreigner can master it, any person who speaks Japanese as a second language and who's been to Japan has had the experience of somebody saying, Oh my gosh, your Japanese is so good. This is a way of distracting the conversation from the topic at hand and switching it to how that person is speaking. If you're visiting Japan for a couple weeks, that's fun, maybe even. If you just finished um, a semester of studying Japanese and you're out in the town and people are complimenting your language skills, that's probably great. If you've been living in Japan for 15 years and you go to the post office and you're trying to get something done and somebody wants to say, wow, your Japanese is really good, it gets to be a little frustrating. So those are, you know. I think that's a good example of the intersection between language skills and speaker legitimacy.
1: Indeed. And from my own very brief experience of teaching Japanese outside of Japan, I found it difficult to recreate the environment for my students to to practice polite language because you don't want to create that kind of hierarchy in your classroom. But then you know that for the students, they're going to have to be in that situation where they use very, very polite language with professors from Japan or the bosses from Japan so that was quite a dilemma even for the teachers
0: yeah yeah definitely
1: yeah and um from your study how do you think different speakers um so native I guess I actually do not know if it's an accurate term to say native speakers but how do different speakers of Japanese view the role of polite language for second language speakers
0: yeah, that's a great question. Before I get into that, I could just say a little bit about the word native. It's tricky because, in in applied linguistics, there's a lot of writing about the problem with that term, and and I, I agree with it. What does it mean to be a to be a native speaker? Who counts as a native speaker? Um, and it's we'll talk about this more because it comes up throughout the book, but. I usually say L1 or first language speaker and L2 or second language speaker. But at the same time, I recognize that just using the word native speaker is a sort of a shorthand and it's quite convenient. <laughs> so it's it's tricky to navigate those, those issues. But to the question about polite language, um, and it, it's helpful to talk about first language and second language speakers or native speakers and non-native speakers in terms of who grew up in Japan, who grew up attending Japanese language schools in Japan who grew up in an English language environment. And I think these groups of people have different ideas about politeness language. But if you ask Japanese learners or second language speakers, you get kind of a range of opinions from people who say learners must master polite language. You have to master Japanese Kegel to people who say, no, you don't need it. You don't need to use it at all. (laughs) And if you ask Japanese people who grew up speaking Japanese in Japan, so if you ask first language speakers, you may get a a similar range, but different reasons behind those answers for whether learners need to learn polite language or don't need to learn it or use it. one argument is that adult Japanese workers are expected to use keigo to, to some extent, of course, depending on what kind of work they do. And if you as a non-native or a non-Japanese person want to live and work in Japan, then you should hold yourself to a similar standard. If you're using Japanese in the workplace, you should be able to use appropriate Japanese politeness that is Aligned with workplace language norms. Um, When, and I've interviewed research participants, for example, who say that you're foreign, you're never going to be Japanese, you don't need to use polite Japanese. And I think this is, this gets, this is really gets to the heart of the question. What does it mean to use Japanese language? And can we, should we, is it even possible to separate Japanese ness? From Japanese language I think it's a mistake to say that if you're not Japanese you don't need to use Japanese to the fullest extent um so that's part of my bias as a researcher <laughs> I think language exists out in the world and it doesn't belong to one set of people just because of their citizenship or ethnicity um so if you are in a Japanese business and you want to be a successful business person I think you'll be much You'll have better results if you're using Japanese politeness language in a way that fits the context and the situation. So, um, for the Japanese research participants who speak Japanese as their first language, people would sometimes say, "Yeah, it's helpful if you're if you work in Japan, you should speak Japanese politeness language." But a lot of people said, "Oh, it, Japanese is so hard." foreigners don't need to master politeness language. I think a common reaction to that is that it's patronizing and it lowers the expectations for what a person can do. Um, My concern, working with research participants and interviewing them and asking about their experiences in the workplace and in their local communities, my concern is that if a second language speaker doesn't use Japanese politeness to some extent, that maybe not to the fullest, but it doesn't use it as all at all, it seems that they are more likely to be treated as a perpetual guest or an outsider. So I'm not sure if I've gotten far away from the original point of the question, um, but hopefully that's that gets us maybe into it a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, from my own experience, knowing nothing about social linguistics, um, I see learners, around me and the experiences uh, using, uh, learning polite language, using that in actual life, but the reaction, um, I guess, uh, we would get from first uh, language speakers of Japanese might, um, in my experience, sometimes it differs um, depending on our looks, depending on our age, depending on our gender, so there's so much complicated um, issue about yeah, and-
0: And if I might just add, you mentioned identity and visible identity. So the tricky part here is if a person does not look Japanese, if they're Caucasian or African-American, if they're visibly not Japanese and not Asian, there's there's maybe an expectation that they can't speak Japanese at all. If a person looks Asian, there's maybe an expectation that they can speak Japanese and that they know all the linguistic norms. Both of these assumptions put the person at a, at a disadvantage. So um, this is, again, ties into speaker legitimacy. Regardless of what you look like, you should have access to the full range of linguistic resources that a language offers you. And when first language Japanese speakers say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're speaking Japanese. That's amazing. Or when they say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you following these norms and your language is so rude? Both of those don't acknowledge what it is to be a language learner and to be on the process of learning a language and to be um, at, at a midway point on a language learning journey that maybe you're not finished with, right? So all of these details take away, a focus on the individual speaker in front of you. Um, and that's something I think that is just really hard to get beyond often. Indeed.
1: And to add a more complicated layer to this uh, problem, we also have gendered language, which is another very difficult part of learning Japanese. So you wrote in the book that although lately this actual use of gendered language in Japanese has been declining, um, but we still see in media that there's um, there's, there are these ideologies about gendered language. We see it in movies, uh, in anime. Um,
0: so, can you tell us more about this point? Yeah. So, first of all, for, for people who maybe aren't familiar with this, when we talk about gendered language in Japanese, we're not talking about grammatical gender like you see in French or languages that have um, an article and the, the word for table is either feminine or masculine. That's not what we're talking about. In Japanese, there are a set of, for example, pronouns and um, sentence final particles that are described as being feminine or masculine. So if you're female, the word for I, uh, there's the neutral watashi, but atashi with an a sound at the beginning is said to be used by women. Boku and ore also mean I, but are said to be used by men. So those are pronouns, um, first person pronouns. We don't have a gendered first person pronoun in English. So that's one detail. There are also sentence final particles. We don't really have sentence final particles in English, although if you think about the Canadian A that comes at the end, like nice, I I don't, I can't do Canadian, I I don't want to imitate, but you know, if you say nice day, well, we have tag questions in English. Nice day, isn't it? In Japanese, we do that isn't it part with a sentence final particle. Well, there are other sentence final particles that are said to be feminine or masculine. So wa is said to be feminine when it's used at the end of a sentence. Zo or ze is said to be masculine when it's used at the end of a sentence. These are normative descriptions, and it's very common for people to say this is how men speak, this is how women speak. And if you watch TV dramas or read a novel or watch anime, you'll hear a very stereotypical representation of this masculine speech or feminine speech. So, um, and if you're learning Japanese as a learner but you wanna watch anime or you wanna read, knowing those details is very important for two reasons. One, It's common in Japanese novels, for example, to not say who is speaking, but because of those markers of gender, you can tell, oh, this is the character, the male character is speaking because they said boku, the word for I that's masculine. Um, So if you're learning Japanese and you don't know those details, you miss a lot of richness in literature and in anime in terms of the Um, crafting of characters. So, boku versus ore has a different character to it. Um, So, these gendered differences are, quote-unquote, alive and well (laughs) in Japanese media and literature and, and those kinds of products. The tricky part is it can give the false impression that this is, in fact, how people speak, and there's this normative take that if you don't speak, or this sense or fear, especially for learners, that if you don't use those markers correctly, then there's something wrong with you or you'll give an an inaccurate or inappropriate impression of yourself. The problem is that research on language use that looks at how actual people speak in actual situations finds that these normative depictions don't hold up in real use situations. There's a lot more variety, Um, There are lots of ways of conveying femininity or masculinity without using these gendered linguistic markers. And so um, the idea that Japanese has women's language and men's language, which is often shared in all kinds of writing and so on, um, that idea is not an accurate depiction of how real people speak in real world situations. Um so but it's tricky when you see there's a textbook um that has a unit on language use and and register and it says if you if you're if you're a learner and you and you use your female but you use the masculine form or you're male and you use the feminine form it's going to be a problem and japanese people this is what the textbook says it's going to be a problem and japanese people will look at you funny or react funny So those kinds of approaches to instruction reinforce these norms, um, which we know are not how normal, I shouldn't say normal, how people speak in real world situations, not in scripted speech, TV dialogues, et cetera. The other thing is that attention to diversity is increasing in Japan as well, and members of the LGBTQ community are using language in ways that align with their identities and maybe um, break so-called rules about how men or women are supposed to speak. So for learners, um, it's very important to learn about gendered language, but it's also very important for instructors to be careful about how they do that. Um, one of the things I found in my book was that many people had a lot of anxiety about how they sounded, and they were their fears about gendered language and, and sounding inappropriately gendered um, impacted how they could speak and um, I think that's because of this tendency for instructors to say well if you don't say it the right way it's going to sound funny or Japanese people are going to look at you funny right and that makes people afraid so that was um, one thing I that was more of a concern than I expected Um, yeah yeah that is a
1: great point and uh, I would really look forward to seeing textbooks or uh, teaching um, materials catching up with the, what, what the the real life out there would be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's not that difficult to do. So for example, if you're teaching that textbook that I mentioned that, that specifically says, don't do this, it's very easy to talk about that in class and then pull out some recent media clips of speakers who, um, break those rules um, there's a new. Well, I don't know how new she is. There's a woman who's sort of like a singer, songwriter, and a talent whose name is Ano. People call her Anochan, and she uses "boku," which is the masculine first person pronoun. And um, you can get a you know, or she uses it in her song is her songs as well as in um, when she sh- appears on TV shows. You could pull a little clip from that and show. Here's this person, and. Look at their language use. Does this line up with what we see in the textbook? Well, no, it doesn't. Well, let's talk about that. So it's not difficult if you take just one extra step. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Now, the third main aspect
1: uh, you discuss in the book is the use of dialect by second language speakers. Um, When learning Japanese outside of Japan, we're often taught the standard language, which is technically supposedly from the Tokyo area. Uh, But from your study, how do second language speakers think about Japanese dialects? And um, I'm more interested in how do uh, native speakers think about second language speakers who use dialects?
0: Yeah, so this is such a great question and it's tightly connected to the book, but the, the participants in my book uh, lived in a, a sort of a limited range of locations in Japan um, for the dialect regions. I have Ehime, which is in Shikoku, and some speakers in the Kansai area. Then I have speakers in Chiba, Tokyo, um, and in the future. Let me just say before I get into some of the details, I'd really hope I'm hoping to do additional research in other areas to get the a bigger range because. It's easy to talk about Japanese dialect in the singular and to kind of use that as a counterpart to standard Japanese, but actually it's more correct to say Japanese dialects with an S because there are a whole bunch of dialects across Japan. So having that as my preface, I wanna say that the people that I interviewed shared a range of views but I suspect if I went to a completely different region, um, especially maybe in the northern part of Japan or in the southern part of Kyushu, very far away from the places that I've gathered data, I think I would get views and comments that I that were quite different from the ones I've encountered so far. But having said that, the people who I interviewed who live in Ehime, in particular, um, tended to agree. Well, one people tended to agree that it's important for Japanese learners who go to Ehime to know that dialect is, exists and to be ready to hear it and and sort of learn it as you go because you'll encounter it. Whether or not a, a non-native Japanese person, a non-native speaker of Japanese should use dialect, that question, there's a lot more variety in how people answer that question. Um, certainly, you, you're, you're not going to go wrong if you speak standard Japanese, right? Um, And and I would never say, well, it's not important to learn standard Japanese. But it does help to understand what dialects are, what it means for a dialect form to be different from the standard form. And if you're at the intermediate level or above in Japanese, I think a little bit of that kind of preparatory knowledge actually goes a long way. Um, So... Understanding how dialects vary in terms of linguistic forms helps you to be flexible so that when you encounter a new form, you can figure out, you know, is it a new word that you don't know? Is it a word that you know, but in a dialect form? And so on. Um, one of the things I think that helps for learners is to break down dialect differences into three um, pa- patterns or categories. One is phonolo- like a phonological category. The other would be morphological and then lexical. And you can talk about phonological differences, morphological differences, and lexical differences. And if anybody's listening and they're like, what is phonology? What's morphology? Phono is the sound. So phonology is something that has to do with a sound. It could be pronunciation. It could be the accent, the up and down of speech. Morphology has to do with how words are put together, so you could think about that as grammar. And then lexical refers to words and units of meaning. So um, phonological dialectal differences, is the vowel different? We have that in English. And of course, now that I said that out loud, I cannot think of an example. But um, well, the pronunciation of the letter A if you're speaking British English versus American English, Southern USA versus Northwestern, Northeastern, et cetera, you'll get a different vowel sound. Japanese dialects have the same types of differences. Shall I give an example? Yeah. <laughs> so the area that I collected data, um, the word to use is in, in Japanese and then the past tense, Tsukata is the um, standard Japanese past tense. In Ehime, the vowel in the middle of that word gets elongated. And so instead of saying tsukata, it sounds like skota. So if you didn't know that that was a possibility, it would sound like a different word to you. But if you are paying attention and you know that you could have this vowel lengthening or prosodic Uh, up-down accent change, then you can catch that and think, oh, this is the dialect of the region I'm in. And um, it doesn't take too long to start picking up those patterns if you're in one area, right? So that's an example of a phonological difference. Other examples are all the um, like pitch accents, is is it rising intonation or falling intonation? And again, those differ from one region to another. what I always think is more fun to talk about is the morphological differences, the way that verbs are conjugated, for example. So um, the word to listen, kiku, um, when you conjugate that into the present progressive tense, kiteiru, that we call that the te form, right? Well, in the d- dialects of Ehime, instead of saying kiteru, we say kikioru. And it you lose the te. So when we teach learners, we talk about learning present progressive. Let's learn the te form, but you lose that te sound in Ehime. So Kiki oru is a, an example of this morphological difference. Once you once you recognize that, then you hear um to do is yaru. Um yaru yateru is the standard form. Well, the the present progressive of yaru, to do is yarioru. And if you go back to kiki or you, you start to hear the pattern. So if you know that that's a way that dialects can differ from the standard, it's easy to start finding the pattern. Um, there's a whole lot of examples of lexical differences. I think those are the ones that are maybe a little bit more famous um, words that are used in the dialect that don't exist in the standard or words that are used in standard and dialect, but have a different connotation or a completely different meaning. So those are um that's just a very short introduction to the ways that dialects can differ from the standard. So to get back to your question, what do people think about these differences? Um, If you live in a dialect using region, being able to understand those differences so you know what people are saying is very important. Um, Whether or not people think that quote unquote foreigners should use dialect is a separate question. And this is where I think the region will impact how people answer that question. In Ehime, I found a lot of Japanese people who said they would love it if foreigners use the local dialect. They would think it was a sign that the person was interested in getting to know Ehime or they would make them feel close to the the person because they're using the local language. Um, I wonder if the reason, I, I, I would say that's a very positive take I wonder if the reason for that positive take has to do with the fact that Ehime dialect is not highly stigmatized and was not as stigmatized historically as some of the other dialects in Japan. So the northern regions, the Tohoku region, for example, is famous as having been very stigmatized um, for its dialect, and I have not done data collection in the Tohoku regions, but my guess, if I were to put forth a hypothesis and then go and test it, it would be that people will be less positive about foreigners using the local dialect if the dialect had that history of heavy stigmatization. Um so hopefully that answers some of your question. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And if I could
1: um, add a question, actually. Um um, I'm curious what you think about uh, second language speakers using dialect without realizing they're using. Right. it. And I'm asking because so the reason that made me pick up your book, actually, was um, <laughs> so I had more than four years of experience living in Kyushu, where I learned a lot of uh, my Japanese there and um, so like you said, I didn't realize at the time that those would also be considered dialect. But then I went to Tokyo for the first time living there and Tokyo people, well, people who grew up in Tokyo um, commented on my Kyushu accent. And um, I, at first um, some people asked me if I was from the countryside because my accent sounded different, but I, wasn't, I didn't realize I was using Kyushu dialect. Um, It was not uh, intentional. But um, how do you think, um, how how does that come into um, play when second language speakers don't even realize that there's the distinction between what they're supposed to be using and what they're actually picking up?
0: Yeah, so there's two pieces to this. One is that, I mean, it's a really good example of learning a language in context. And, And it shows how we learn languages. We learn languages by speaking with other people. And we tend to pick up the linguistic details that other people use when they speak. So if if there's a a pitch accent difference or an accent or a vowel difference, the learner is going to be most likely to use what they hear in use around them. If there's a word that people use, but they only use it in that region, the learner who hears that word is going to use that word themselves. So first of all, I think that no one should feel bad for picking up the local dialect. That means their brain is working as intended, (laughs) right? That's how we learn languages. But if you are going to be living in different places or moving around Japan, you don't want to feel like you're speaking in a way that surprises people or you don't want to use a word that's going to confuse someone. So I I didn't give an example of this, but I mentioned that for lexical dialectal differences sometimes it's a completely different word that's fine because either the person knows it or they don't but it doesn't cause problems but other words might have a different connotation um, a good example maybe is erai erai means uh great or um high performing or somebody's really good at something or they've done a great job in standard japanese that's what erai means in western dialects it often means um to be tired or exhausted or that something is um, like hard work. And so I think, and we might think about, well, maybe that's the connection, like it, I as being really um, good at something. If something is hard work and you're good at it, you're exhausted at the end. we We might talk about the connection, but and I don't know if that's why that dialectal difference exists. But the point is, if you didn't know that that word has that connotation in dialect, but a different connotation in standard, you could get confused. So for learners, it helps to know if you're in a region that uses a dialect, there's going to be dialect phrases and expressions and and grammatical conjugations that you'll learn that are specific to that region. If you know that that's a thing that's going to happen, it's much easier to, as you're learning these local forms, you can also kind of locate them in the standard and make sure that you're keeping in mind how the, those forms might differ in standard Japanese. If you live in Japan and you watch the TV news, you're going to be hearing standard Japanese. So again, if learners know that, that Japanese dialects exist and are quite common, then I think it makes it easier to sort of learn as you go. Um, the accent question is very tricky because, especially for adult learners, learning and, and having a an accent that's close to the first language accent is one of the more challenging tasks for language learners. So if you're in a, if you're in a dialect using region with a particular accent, it's very difficult to to not learn that accent or to learn that accent while understanding what the standard accent is, because adult learners just, that's just a big challenge for them. I think though, the, maybe the, the best approach is to not, um, not be overwhelmed by it, and to think that this is something that you, you do as a part of being a member of a community. Um, and if we think about the fact that linguistic diversity, language variation is the standard <laughs> that, um, you know, the expression, the only constant is change, this idea that there's one language that's one correct language is just false. And even for speakers of the so-called standard Japanese, there's a lot more variation at the local level and at the individual level than people acknowledge. So if, if there was more recognition of the fact that linguistic diversity is the most common feature of language, then having these differences of of accent, for example, would be less, I think, um, troublesome for for learners. I I hope that when uh, learners of Japanese are in Japan, they can see this as an opportunity rather than a challenge, that they have the opportunity to learn more about Japanese language and to learn Japanese linguistic variation.
1: Yes, I'm absolutely proud of my Kyushu accents and I don't intend to uh, change it (laughs) to a fancy Tokyo accent. But uh, this leads us back to (laughs) when we began about native speaker bias. And I want to end with a more broader question. So um, I suppose now we can talk about what is native speaker bias and how does it pose um, difficulties for Japanese learners? But more importantly, what can language instructors or uh, language programs do? to help learners um, understand this kind of bias and overcome the difficulties uh, brought by this bias.
0: Right, thank you. That's a great question. So I'm gonna put the question of language teachers off to the end and start with, first of all, what is native speaker bias? And then we'll talk about how it impacts second language speakers of Japanese in Japan. I use the term native speaker bias in general as, as the way that I, explain this idea. There's a lot of research that uses the term native speakerism. And then there's also uh, some researchers who use the term, the native speaker concept. The native speaker concept as a term, I would say is the most neutral term because it's just the idea that there is this thing that's a native speaker. And what do we mean when we use that term? What's the idea behind it? Native speakerism, and native speaker bias get at the idea that this this concept of native speaker is problematic. So I think native speakerism and native speaker bias are closely aligned. I like to use the word native speaker bias because I find that the idea of the native speaker functions as a bias that impacts both um, native speakers and non-native speakers in a variety of ways. Um, So what is native speaker bias? I think the starting point is that the idea of native speaker bias is a critique of the tendency to put native speakers at the center and to say that the native speaker is the standard for language use. The native speaker is the standard for language assessment. The problem with the idea of the native speaker is that it assumes that there's this existence of an ideal and idealized native speaker that this native speaker has perfect language competence and they're this perfect speaker. But when we look at real people on the ground talking, there's so much diversity from one speaker to another even when you line up, you know, 10 people who we would categorize as native speakers, they don't speak the same. They don't have the same set of linguistic repertoire. And um if you grabbed 10 people all from tokyo you'd still have 10 different ways of speaking but if you grab 10 people from 10 different locales across japan if you grab 10 different people from 10 different occupations 10 different people of 10 different ages genders etc so when you start talking about that well what do we mean when we say native speaker which native speaker How can the native speaker function as a standard for language use when we can't even pull together 10 people who have the exact same set of linguistic competence and ways of speaking? Um, So that's part of the reason why the term native speaker is problematic. Another reason why the term native speaker is problematic is because at the heart of this idea of native speaker is a view of language as homogenous, fixed, not changing, static. But as I was saying earlier, the only constant is change. The only constant about language is that they change. There's language variation and linguistic diversity at all levels and across all speakers. So the idea of native speaker is that there's this one speaker who speaks this one language, but in reality, neither of those things exist. Another problem with this idea of native speaker is that it suggests that there's a correct way to speak, and an incorrect way to speak, an appropriate way to speak, and an inappropriate way to speak. That becomes quite prescriptive. And so the bias is that if you're not a native speaker and then what you're saying isn't correct or appropriate, that that's somehow bad or less less than. Um, uh, there's a famous expression in, in second language acquisition that's, that's the deficient communicator. And so when the native speaker is posited as this ideal speaker, the non-native speaker is the deficient communicator. And that comes from the work of um, Firth and Wagner, um, which is now you know 20 plus years old, but still a problem um, for speakers on the ground. Um, one other thing I wanna mention about why the idea of native speaker is problematic is that it also takes identity including race, nationality, ethnicity, and language competence, and smooshes them together. (laughs) And the idea is if you are a Japanese person, for example, you speak Japanese. If you're not a Japanese person, then what you're speaking is not Japanese. And that's why native speaker ideas become a bias that impacts actual speakers. Um, With regard to Japanese second language speakers in Japan, one of the problems that they encounter because of native speaker bias is that they're always sort of vulnerable to having their language use critiqued or assessed by Japanese speakers. Um, I had one of my participants in the, who I write about in the book said that she really liked Japanese dialect, but she didn't want to use it very often because if she did, people made a fuss about it and she said if you're japanese and you use japanese dialect that's just how you talk but if you're not japanese and you use japanese dialect it's a big event and that for people to start you know talking about and what that is what that shows us is that one of the detriments of native speaker bias is that it takes away freedom and agency from the speaker if you're not a native speaker you don't get to do language play you don't get to create with the language Um, and it, and it also sort of means that non-native speakers are more vulnerable to being told that they're wrong. If you're an expert speaker and you've been speaking Japanese for 10 years, 20 years, and you're writing and you want to be creative, the last thing you want is for somebody to say, oh, that's, this isn't correct here. Well, what happened to artistic license? If you're a Japanese person who's seen as a native speaker, you have that artistic license. so there's a lot more we can talk about about the specific Japan context, but hopefully that's a good introduction to the idea of native speaker bias. Um, then the next part of your question was about learners, but any, yes. anything to add or, or follow up on at this point? Oh,
1: no, it's it's very thought-provoking, <laughs> it's, yeah.
0: Yeah, so with regard to um, learners in Japan, um, you may be familiar with the term Nihonjinron, Nihonjin ron could be translated as the theory of the Japanese or theories of the Japanese people. And there's a tight connection or a, a very strong native speaker bias built into Nihonjin which is that this idea that Japanese language is mysterious and unique and incredibly difficult and impossible for foreigners to learn. That's a classic native speaker bias, you know, example of native speaker bias. It's also not true, (laughs) Japanese is not that unique. There are other languages around the world that that share things in common with with Japanese. And it's not so inscrutable that it can't be learned, that it can't be mastered. And there are examples of people learning Japanese as a second language successfully all the time. But because of this bias, um, this is why we see the denial of speaker legitimacy when somebody says, oh, your Japanese is so good. You're trying to take care of something in a supermarket or at the post office or in in the workplace you're in a meeting you don't want somebody to tell you about your Japanese skills you want them to engage with the ideas that you're sharing native speaker bias gets in the way of that and so that's why it's a problem for learners um, when people say foreigners don't need to use kegel foreigners don't need to use polite Japanese but a 24-year-old Japanese person trying to get a job or trying to to get a promotion in, in, their, business, in their company is going to suffer if they don't use Japanese polite language, right? So how is it that a similar person who happens to not be Japanese, that it's okay for them to not use polite language? I would say that's native speaker bias.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Um, yeah. And as language instructors, as uh, language teaching programs, um, what do you think are some things we can do to help our students realize, understand that there's such bias existing, and um, help them not get discouraged by this bias yeah. when they actually go to Japan?
0: Yeah, this is. I mean, this is sort of the big question and the thing that I think about a lot as a teacher, and um, and it's challenging because. As teachers, we don't want our students to have bad feelings about Japan. We want them to be excited about Japan. We want them to go and study and work in Japan and enjoy being in Japan. So I think there's a tendency to think like, if I say something bad, then my students are gonna wanna give up on Japanese. I think that patronizes our students, <laughs> right? There's, you know, there's no perfect country on, on the planet, unfortunately. <laughs> so any country has its challenges. And if, if we can share with our students, these are the challenges that might be specific to you as a person who's gonna go and use Japanese in Japan and prepare them not so that they have a chip on their shoulder, but rather you may encounter this. Here are things you can do to keep moving forward without letting it knock you off, you know, off balance. Um, but I think separate from that, it's also very important that teachers see and value the speaker legitimacy in their students. So certainly if you're introducing a grammar point, if you're doing, you know, focus on form or practicing the past tense, there's a correct and an incorrect answer. But that's not all we do in language classes. And even at the very beginning level, give students a chance where they're expressing themselves and what they say is valued for the content that it carries. By by doing that in the language class, students will see themselves as Japanese users, not just as Japanese learners. And I think we can't go to Japan and talk to every speaker on the, in the country and say, don't do native speaker bias. <laughs> it's not, there's too many people, right? It's not gonna happen. But we can prepare our students to expect to be language users by valuing our students, then when our students get to Japan, I think they'll be more um, able to withstand sort of unpleasant interactions that they might have and to, to go, go through them with a smile rather than wanting to give up and go home. Um, and that's sort of, you know we, we hear the word grassroots a lot, in a way, I mean, that's the grassroots approach to, to reducing native speaker bias any non-native speaker of japanese who goes to japan has a chance to make themselves heard and we will we will encounter you know resistance there will be times when somebody's not you know not paying attention to what you're saying um treating you as an outsider but um i i have faith that that's not really how people want to interact with each other anyway so the the people that I have the most likelihood of changing are my students because that's who I interact with the most. <laughs> so I feel it's, you know, that's the, the the entry point for me is to make sure that students have confidence in themselves, know that they have the right to use Japanese, that they can be a speaker of Japanese without being a Japanese person, and that that's a perfectly fine way to be in the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great thing to hear. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for your time um, with us today yeah.
0: on this channel. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: It's. I have to say, I have to add, it's one of the most interesting uh, social linguistics books
0: I've read. Wow. Thank you. That's great to hear. Yes.
1: And I hope our listeners would want to learn more uh, about language and linguistics after hearing this episode. Make sure to check out this uh, new book, Language Ideologies and Second Language Speaker Legitimacy Native, Native Speaker Bias in Japan by Dr. Jay Takeuchi. This book is currently available in hardback and ebook. This is Jenny Lee from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.